our original sin was race, but you'd be surprised to understand, or maybe not, that every nation in the world has its original sin. Not always race, but it may be the Roma in, uh, in Hungary, the gypsies, and so all the stereotypes you hear about African-Americans in the South, say in the 19th century, you hear about the gypsies in Hungary. It's about refugees who come from Syria and go to Germany and the reaction of the Germans to all of these refugees, or it's about people coming from Africa and going to Greece and being trapped there and nobody knowing what to do with them, or the tremendous opposition to any kind of immigration in Poland. And in all of those areas, you're correct. It's about communities and about the way communities are structured and the way about in which they understand identity and the feeling that uh, if you live in Alabama and somebody comes from New York and starts making fun of the state, the typical reaction is, if you don't like it here, why don't you go back to New York? Rather than to try to say, uh, let me take you to Dauphin Way United Methodist Church and knock the edges off some of your prejudices. Uh, <laughs> here's an example, uh, and these are all classic themes that relate to tolerance. Page 33, Atticus speaking to Scout in the first grade. Uh, she has defended Walter Cunningham from her teacher who is new to the community and has come down from Walker County, an implausible place for the teacher to be from with the prejudices she has. It would be much more common if the teacher were from Mountain Brook uh, coming down to uh, Monroe. Um, but after the disagreement with her teacher and her teacher's sharp criticism of her, she goes home and Atticus asks her what's wrong. She explains what has happened and they're sitting in the swing and Atticus says to her, if you can learn a simple trick, Scout, you'll get along better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Page 241 in my paperback edition. Uh, Atticus is speaking to his son, Jim, after uh, Robert E. Lee Yule has spit tobacco juice in his face at the end of the trial, and Atticus refuses to spit back. Uh, that's the sort of thing your parents teach you before you get to the eighth grade, right? Take it. Don't fight back. Don't respond as low-class people respond. And so he says, Jim, see if you can stand in Bob Ewell's shoes a minute. I destroyed his last shred of credibility at that trial. The man had to have some kind of comeback. His kind always does. And then on page 308 in the penultimate scene just before the end of the book, um, Scout is trying to explain her father to Boo Radley after Boo Radley has saved her life. And in her now adult wisdom, she's nine, <laughs> she knows everything. Atticus was right. One time he said, you never really know a man until you stand in his shoes and walk around in them. So the theme for the modern world, outside the South at least, and maybe now outside America after Charleston and everything that's happened, maybe we're understanding the book again as a race book, but outside of America, it's understood as a book about people who are not like us. It's gay people in a 
homophobic society. It's about women in a man's engineering firm. It's about refugees. It's about outsiders, the eternal other in life. Curiously enough, that is not only the way you understand the book, but also the way Barack Obama understood the book. Uh, most people who were not Harper Lee fanatics did not really pay any attention to the first year of his administration when he tr spoke to college students at the University of Tel Aviv. And at the end of that speech, he said, you will never have peace with the Palestinians until you learn to get inside their skins and walk around in their shoes. And I thought, oh, that's gotta be straight out of Mockingbird. But he didn't say a word about Harper Lee, didn't identify the book. Uh, that summer, after the speech at Tel Aviv, uh, a television camera for uh, national public television had a clip of him coming out of a bookstore on Martha's Vineyard, Martha's Vineyard, and the reporter shouted at him like reporters do to presidents when they have the opportunity, Mr. President, did you buy a book? And he looked at her and he said, yes, I bought To Kill a Mockingbird for Malika's 12th birthday. So I'm thinking, ah, oh, he really did. He really did plagiarize. <laughs> Harper Lee, the president plagiarized Harper Lee. Then his farewell address, January 2017 in Chicago, and I quote, if our democracy is to work in this increasingly diverse nation, each one of us must heed the advice of one of the great characters of American fiction, comma, Atticus Finch, colon, quotation, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Verbatim quotation from the swing on the porch after the first day of Scout's school, first grade. When in fact, in the first grade, she may have learned the most important lesson of American democracy which is in fact the ability to get in someone else's shoes before you judge them. Now this is one place where Methodist and Baptist proclaim the same gospel. There are places where we don't, but that is one place where we proclaim the same gospel. So to those of you who are Jewish, Catholic, Pentecostal, holiness, because this is what unites us in the world's great Abrahamic traditions, and yes, even Muslims, who are united in this Abrahamic tradition of understanding that tolerance and not fanaticism is at the root of grace and the mediation of grace. That's the gospel according to Harper Lee. How did it all happen? Uh, a real long time ago, back in 1983, my wife and I were participating in a conference uh, about the history and culture of Eufaula, Alabama. It was a part of the Auburn University Humanities Center, which we had just begun, and this was our philosophy. Mobile has more events like this than you know what to do with. As a matter of fact, you could spend every day and night of the year attending some great event in Mobile. 
Same thing with Huntsville, same thing with Birmingham, same thing with Montgomery, but out there in the outback, in small towns and rural areas of Alabama, there are people like you who marry or go to work or teach school, and sometimes it is a great Sahara of the Beaux-Arts. It's like you shrivel and die unless you like high school Friday night football. <laughs> and out there, there are writers and thinkers and, and philosophers, and they're all just waiting for something to come to town that allows them to tell their stories. And so that's what we did. We had local committees and the local committees plan the entire program. They usually wanted to focus, say, on the African-American church in their town or the most prominent Methodist or Catholic or Jewish synagogue. Uh, they wanted to uh, especially focus on writers from their communities who had been published writers and sometimes really good ones, but not necessarily like now, winners of the Pulitzer Prize. So what we did was to take a team into each town which was determined by a local committee, and one of the local committee members was Louis Connor. Uh, Louise Connor uh, was born in 1916, the second of the Lee sisters. Alice, the oldest, and perhaps in some ways the most beloved in Southwest Alabama. Alice was born, if you can believe this, on 9-11-1911. How would you like to celebrate your, your birthday on the day of the bombing of the World Trade Center? Um, Alice uh, grew up during the Depression, was affected by the Depression, had a difficult time going to school, to college. In many ways, she was the smartest of the three. Uh, no disrespect to either Louise or to Nell, but uh, let me give you an example of this. At age 97, we were visiting Nell in Monroeville, and Alice came in with her driver. She was in the law office all day at 97, doing tax law mainly. And she came in, and I wish Darty's voice would allow her to, to mimic Alice because she has the accent perfectly, and I'll do my best because my wife tutored me here. I knew you were here because I saw your tag. And I said, Alice, what does my tag tell you about? It was us here. She said, I knew the number of the prefix of your tag was Lee County. I said, you have never lived in Lee County. How could you possibly know the prefix for Lee County? I have insomnia, and when I can't sleep, I repeat the presidents of the United States in order, and then I repeat the vice presidents of the United States in order, and on really bad nights, I start with Imperial Jefferson County number one. <laughs> And sometimes between Otago County and Washington County, I always fall asleep. <laughs> Did I do that right? <laughs> Not quite perfectly. Uh, then Nell, who was by now, had had her stroke in April of 2007, so she was in Meta's assisted living. She was laughing at 
at Alice. And we were taking uh, Nell out to her favorite seafood restaurant, uh, a catfish place there in Monroe. And I said, Alice, why don't you join us for dinner? She said, I can't. This woman came in with her taxes just as I was leaving the office, and I only have a few days before the tax deadline. And tomorrow I'm going to watch the Masters Golf Tournament. I'm not going to do her taxes. So I have to do them tonight. And Nell was absolutely furious. And she said, who would bring their taxes in five days before the tax deadline and want you to do her taxes right away? Mrs. Gayard. She came in on her walker by herself with a grocery bag full of all her receipts for the year. And then said, I thought that woman was dead. And I said, no, she's 102. She's only 102. Alice died at 103. Can you believe that story? Can you believe that story? I mean, if I had not been there, I would not have believed that story. Uh, Nell uh, was the last of the four children. Uh, Ed was born in 2020. Ed was the love of her life. She adored and worshiped him. And the depiction of Jim, of uh, the almost adulation toward Jim and To Kill a Mockingbird is exactly her relationship with Ed. He was an in on the Monroe County high school football team. He was extremely athletic in every sport. During World War II, he left Auburn in 1943 to volunteer for the U.S. Air Force, flew a P-51 Mustang in the Battle of the Bulge in Normandy, uh, then was shipped to the Pacific where he continued to fly combat missions, was wounded, had a Purple Heart, came out of the Air Force, uh, returned to Monroeville, and then was called back into service during the Korean War, uh, went to Maxwell to teach uh, pilots, uh, and after a softball game one July day in a, the miserable heat of an Alabama summer, went back to his room, had a massive cerebral hemorrhage, and died. Uh, the fourth child, uh, born in 1926 on April 28th was Nell Harper Lee. And she grows up in the atmosphere that is very well depicted because the book is so autobiographical in To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, now you have sort of the background and uh, I think that probably the best thing to do here is to simply open this up for questions because in the second half, I'm going to juxtapose the first novel, and here's where the chronological problem begins to affect what I'm going to say in the second session, because the first novel is, in fact, Go Set a Watchman. Very important that you understand that. This is the novel that was on her heart, and this is the fury she felt toward her father and toward Monroe when she left Alabama in 1949, just before she received her law degree, and maybe a year's work left in law school. And Truman Capote had, of course, encouraged her uh, to come to New York. Her 
childhood friend living next door in the Fog House. Uh, he had become a famous writer in 1948, published a sort of come out story called Other Voices, Other Rooms, which uh, is the coming out novel, beautiful ev evocation of the world that he came from in South Alabama. Uh, he was a celebrity. Uh, he said, Nell, why don't you come on up, spread your wings and fly. You don't want to be a lawyer. Sorry about that, Larry. Uh, you don't want to be a lawyer. Uh, you want to be a writer. So she leaves, she goes to New York. And if you can imagine being in Truman Capote's circle of friends and reading the New York Times and the chronology of these years, 1954, May, Brown v. Board of Education, uh, 1955, the second Brown v. Board of Education, December 1955, the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott, which lasts until December of the next year. A pregnant African-American woman shot by a white sniper while she's on a bus in Montgomery during the Montgomery bus boycott. The bombing of four black churches in Montgomery, Alabama by terrorists and the bombing of Martin Luther King's home in Montgomery. 33 black churches, parsonages, and lawyers' houses in Dynamite Hill in Birmingham between 1949-1963. The rise of the White Citizens Councils, 75,000 members of White Citizens Councils by 1956. Uh, in small towns like Monroeville, if you were a lawyer or a preacher, you were the most vulnerable professional to the community fury that was being generated because those were the people who were typically standing outside the magic circle of Alabama culture and criticizing it, or even defending African Americans. Remember, when African Americans knew their place in 1932 to 35, and knew if you got outside your place, you were lynched. That is a very different world than the world where blacks are boycotting the entire Montgomery bus system and forcing change because of their initiative, not because of people like Atticus Finch who take their side. They're now independent in their shoving against the boundaries of the culture. She's going to read in the New York Times about every event I just described to you. And her anger at the culture from which she comes grows and grows until finally it explodes. And what is the form of their, that explosion? Go set a watchman. The twist on the story is that at this point, it is her agent, Maurice Crane, from Texas, whom she adored, and being a very insecure writer who never felt confident in her writing, if you can believe that, very insecure. And when Maurice Crane told her after reading Go Set a Watchman, America is not ready for this book. Not the South. <laughs> America is not ready for this book. And then Tay Hawhoff, her editor at Lippincott, who had been working with her through draft after draft of the manuscript, told her, Nell, your characterizations of childhood are absolutely brilliant. The story is compelling. America is not ready for this story. Nell puts it aside, 
because she's never published anything. She's a very insecure writer. And she did not remember 55 years later even what the book was about other than it was about Atticus Finch and Monroe and race. She had not looked at it for 55 years. She had not put pen to it. She had not revised a line. And when I said, Nell, are you going to revise anything? She said, no, let it go like I wrote it. And I said, are you sure you want this done? A question that her beloved uh, nephew, Hank Connor, had asked her four times over two days because he didn't want it to, her to publish it because he said, it will only diminish your reputation as a writer. Are you sure you want this published? Four times over two days, she said, Hank, I want it published. Just let it go and let it be published. And so it was. That's the first novel. That's the angry novel. That's the novel set in 1956, not in 1932. This is the place where blacks did not accept whites telling them about freedom. Now they would have freedom on their own terms. That's the book she wrote. The book that you read, To Kill a Mockingbird, is actually the book that Maurice Crane and Tay Hawhoff teased out of and revised out of what was really her furious and angry original book. So when we switch, we switch to the first book, but now I'm perfectly willing to talk about the second book, To Kill a Mockingbird. So we've got about 15 minutes. Have I messed your minds up too badly? <laughs> Questions? Yeah, over here. If you'll wait just a second, everybody will be able to hear. Thank you. You mentioned Nell's father and her siblings, but you made no mention of her mother. Yeah. Did you want uh, to talk about what I, she I, was I, like? Yeah. Uh, there's a reason I didn't mention her mother. I don't have a clue. None of them ever talked about their mother, except to say, uh, uh, well, I'll tell you what uh, Harper did say about her mother. She was furious as I, in fact, she actually writes in one of the letters, one of the hundred letters uh, that's in uh, Mockingbird songs. She actually writes a critique of Truman Capote. And Truman Capote is the source of when he was talking to Gerald Clark about, uh, Gerald Clark was writing his biography. He was also writing a, a book of Truman Capote's letters. And Truman Capote alleged that uh, her mother tried to drown her in a bathtub and she was only saved by the intervention of Alice and Louise who stopped her. Um, and that's just totally made up. And when she, in the letter which she wrote me and which is in Mockingbird songs, she said, well, you'll have to understand that at this point, and this is uh, after 1965, Truman's in cold blood appeared in 1965. He expected, and everyone expected, and Nell included, expect him to win both the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. He won neither. From 1965 forward, the best friend she had in the world pushed her completely away. The way Truman uh, 
interpreted this was she had won the Pulitzer Prize and now she was a big shot and he was a better writer and had been so influential in her life and she now neglected him. That is not the case. It's exactly the reverse. After 1965, he is so jealous that he will have nothing to do with her. Uh, she loved him to the end, but she was not willing any more than his partner, Jack Dunphy, a World War II vet who had gone off with him to Italy and lived for 15 years, nearly 15 years. Uh, Jack Dunphy and Nell Harper Lee, the people who loved Truman the most, were not willing to see him destroy himself with alcohol, drug addiction, and promiscuity. And so he, that was his retaliation. And in the letter she said, Wayne, you'll have to understand that it was like this. If someone came into the room and said, I have terrible news, President Kennedy has just been assassinated, Truman would have said, I know, I was driving the car. So, essentially, his narcissism has just completely taken over. The other sources about uh, the mother are largely the speculations of Charles Shields, the biographer. Um, Charles Shields, with a good deal of peripheral evidence, suggests that her mother was bipolar. Uh, the reasons for this partly are in postpartum depression uh, when uh, Alice's birth was perfectly normal. Louise's birth was not normal in 1916. She was uh, not able to nurse. Uh, most forms of milk made her sick and she began to lose weight and she's crying all the time. Now, if you can imagine, you're a young lawyer trying to establish a practice in Monroeville, Alabama in the teens. Your wife has just had a second child. This child cries 24 hours a day and is rapidly losing weight and about to die. And at this point, someone in Monroeville said, have you heard about Dr. Harper, a pediatrician in Selma? Uh, and in desperation, they take Louise to Selma and ask the pediatrician to look at her, and he immediately diagnosed, the reason I know this is because the same thing happened to my mother and me in Pontotoc, Mississippi in October 1940. I was like her, allergic to my mother's milk. My mother had malaria, so she couldn't nurse it first. And then secondly, uh, the formula that they got at the store made me sick. I started losing weight. They thought I was going to die. And an African-American woman with a cow who was doing mother's wash brought the cow and did fresh cow's milk, and I was fine. But that took a long time for the doctor to diagnose and treat correctly. Meanwhile, Atticus is trying to keep his law practice together. Mrs. Lee is coming apart at the seams profound, I think, postpartum depression. She goes to Mobile. She has shock treatments. Uh, she gets up and plays. Uh, she was a wonderful musician, had gone to uh, uh, Montevallo, the Women's College of Alabama. Uh, she was from a well-to-do family. Education was important to her. So she's playing etudes and Bach and Handel at 3 o'clock in the morning on the piano as loud as she can, waking everybody in the neighborhood up. Uh, Nell's explanation, my mother was perfectly normal. My mother was the most loving person you can imagine. 
Alice and Louise said the same thing. So it's, it depends on whether you want to apply an, uh, a biographer's psychological analysis or whether you want to believe the three sisters. But remember, the three sisters would certainly not, at that stage in their life, had admitted their mother was bipolar either. We do know that her mother would take long vacations in the summer, either at Orange Beach, Gulf Shores, or down on the Mississippi coast. And they would bring the um, Atticus Kolele would bring the children one at a time to stay with her for brief periods of time. And yet, uh, while he was in the legislature from 26 to 1938, Mrs. Lee was regularly with them, uh, took them to the zoo and things like that. So it's a complicated question, and it depends upon who you listen to. But if you listen to the people in the family, including Hank Connor, the family historian, they say this is just all part of the fraud, the same kind of fraud that said that uh, uh, Nell was being manipulated by her lawyer, Tanya Carter, who replaced Alice after she died, and that she had found copies of Ghost Set of Watchmen but did not reveal that she had found them until after Alice died so she could learn, earn all the legal fees from the discovery and publication of the book, and it should have never been published and Tanya manipulated the publication because by that time, Nell was demented, which is all bunk. And if you don't believe that, read her letters in the book, Mockingbird Songs, in 2006, 2005, 2015, 2016, and ask yourself, does this sound like a demented woman? Or if you want a better example, only months before she died, she sponsored a performance of King Lear at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Her, incidentally, her favorite Shakespeare play, although she liked all of them, but she particularly liked King Lear. Uh, her best friend, Joy Brown, who had given her the money to allow her to retire and spend full time from December 1956 till October 1957, recasting go set a watchman into what you know is to kill a mockingbird. So those are the months where she and Tay Hawhoff are fiercely recasting go set a watchman. And during that period of time, um, Nell spends really 17, 18 hours a day writing and rewriting uh, go set a watchman. And her, her agent is encouraging her to say ha hoff is literally every day she'll bring a draft in and she'll go over it every day week after week after week recasting the book and during that period of time uh nell uh, as i said a very insecure writer actually told uh Lippincott when they agreed to publish 5,000 copies of it my dad will, will buy most of those and distribute them in uh, Monroeville, and I just hope the rest disappear without embarrassing me too much. By then, her mother is still alive. She's still celebrating the, the book, uh, everything she's doing. Of course, her dad is sick, has cancer. Uh, she then uh, goes down to Monroeville, stays with him. She was a wonderful caregiver. Uh, she took Alice's place because Alice was in, working in case or, or law firm. Louise is married and has two sons in Eufaula. 
So it's Snell who comes back from New York, flying on a plane which made her, she had motion sickness, fiercely ill. But she flies on the plane, comes back, and changes his diaper, takes care of him until he dies. When Maurice Crane became ill with cancer, and his wife is uh, taking care of their agency in New York City, it was Nell who five days a week stayed in Connecticut doing the same thing for Maurice Crane she had done for her father. I bet that's neither Harper Lee or you, right? Other questions? Yeah. Larry? Larry's question was, why is it that all nations have original sins? Okay, take academic hat off. Put Baptist preacher hat on. <laughs> for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For there is none righteous, no, not one. For all of you Baptists, you remember learning, memorizing all that? Uh, there's something to be said for universal wisdom. And universal wisdom is universal. It's called universal wisdom for a reason, because almost everybody who reads universal wisdom says, that's right, that resonates. Uh, you can read the Analects Confucius. You can read the Tao Te Ching. Uh, you can read uh, the Koran. You can read the Jewish Bible. You can read the Gospels. And there is a core that says, we follow our self-interest. We are all, to some degree, narcissists, materialists, and hedonists. Donald Trump is just an exuberant example of all the above. But all of us have Donald Trump in us. And all of us have the capacity for evil. And all of us commit evil because we are selfish and because we want our own way. And therefore, what you try to do as a young person is try to figure out how do you cut the edges off the evil within you to live in human relationships that are not dissolvable and that allow you to live in community. And at 14, you think, oh, gosh, that's so much mother and dad, or that's so much the Bible. Well, when you get a little older, that is so much the reality of your life. You know, as we have our debates about what is morality and what is ethics, I always tell 105 people in the Pilgrim Sunday School class, don't judge each other, because I can tell you what Jesus thought about your judging of each other. He said it explicitly in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, judge not that you be not judged, or with such judgment as you judge, you shall be judged. And what he meant by that is, anytime you judge another human being, their original sin will be category A, number one. And your original sin will be category Z, number 6,432. Because that's the way you will all, every one of you, live your life. Making normative for everybody what you find to be right 
making normative for everybody what you find to be wrong, and that is the original sin. And you just then change the face of that sin to be sexism, misogyny, racism, imperialism, narcissism, materialism. And if you get Jim Wallace, he'll explain this even better. Have him down to do the lectures. I think you may be thinking about that. If you get to hear Jim Wallace, don't miss him because he is going to answer that question better than I am, Larry. One final question. We've got about two minutes. Here's pure two Robins. I'll try to be short, and maybe you can get both of them. I'm capable of being short. Of course, it has been said that To Kill a Mockingbird was actually written by Truman Capote. Yeah. I just wondered how you thought that got perpetuated and any truth or validity at all. The question is, uh, Truman Capote claimed that he wrote it. He claimed to a Boston writer, a sort of minor writer, she told her friends, uh, may have been other places as well. Uh, all of that came after 1965. So far as we know, there's not a single suggestion he wrote it until after he did not win the National Book Award or the Pulitzer Prize for In Cold Blood. Uh, the person who perpetuates that is Gerald Clark, his biographer, who also was the author of his collected letters. Uh, nowhere in the letters did he suggest this. That's telling in and of itself. I mean, if you did write it, why do you only circulate this at cocktail parties and places like that? Uh, furthermore, there's a letter, and uh, in fact, I have a descri description of this in Mockingbird's songs. A reporter for National Public Radio called me the day of the Academy Awards when Capote was up for a nomination and the uh, Hoffman, who played Capote, a brilliant performance, if you've not seen the movie Capote, uh, and uh, she said, I understand that a letter has been received by the museum in Monroeville from the Jennings Carter family. Jennings Carter was the third of the triumvirate. It was Truman Capote, Harper Lee, and Jennings Carter. And Jennings Carter was a big farm boy who pitched hay bales. So if Harper could not knock the teeth out of somebody picking on her friend Truman in the first grade, Jennings Carter came in and just sort of cleaned off the entire playground. So there were three, not two. Jennings Carter had received a letter in 1959. Now remember, this is when Truman and Harper are out in Kansas. And she is trying to save In Cold Blood because he is a flamboyant homosexual in a heavily Methodist small town in Kansas. And everybody except one family who happened to be literary struck, and he was uh, with the Kansas State Patrol, and he was the source that Truman got of the inside investigation of the Cutter murders. So they really liked Truman, but all, everybody else who knew about the Cutter tragedy loved Nell because Nell was a Methodist from Monroeville, Alabama, and she was just like they were. And she has 98 closely written, handwritten pages of notes of interviews without which there would have been no In Cold Blood. Truman dedicates the book to her, but she should have been the co-author of the book. 
because it would not have existed without her interviews. Therefore, Truman, in this period of his life, uh, begins to fantasize 1965 forward that he actually wrote the famous book because his book never measured up. And in the letter she wrote me, she said, my, my fault, as, so far as Truman understood it, was that I wrote a book which became famous. And that's the way she explained it. There was one question right in back, and this will be the last one. Somebody had their hand up earlier. Okay, they've forgotten their question. So. Uh, I believe we're out of time, so uh, I think we have a reception now. Is that right? We do have a reception in the Gowan Hall, and you're welcome to come in and have refreshments.